This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. When I ran into Jean Stone at Plantstock in August, I was in awe. Jean is the contributing author, co-author, ghostwriter of some of the most influential books on health, wellness, plant-based eating, veganism, animal rights, animal welfare. And there he was. And for me, who's helped to write Whole and Proteinaholic and the Low Carb Fraud, meeting Gene is like a young scientist meeting, you know, Albert Einstein. So I was thrilled that he actually knew who I was and was willing to be on the podcast to talk about his work. Now, I thought of him at that point as kind of a plant-based author. I didn't realize he'd also co-written a book with Stephen Hawking. And as an editor, he had arranged for the biography of John Lennon by Albert Goldman and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's autobiography. Plus, he's written The Definitive Guide on Watches. And he wrote a book um, about The Secrets of People Who Never Get Sick, which is a bestseller also and, and got him onto some pretty cool TV shows. So in addition to being brilliant and thoughtful and having a heart of gold and having this incredible career, Gene is also a really good conversationalist. So like, like classic, like you look up, you know, conversationalist in the dictionary and there he is. So I really enjoyed just chatting with him and I'm so glad I was able to hit record and share it with you. So without further ado, Gene Stone, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. Oh, thank you. So in, in going over your, your biography, you know, when we met up at Plantstock, I was kind of thinking of us as like we both kind of do the same thing. Like we work with, with scientists and, and leaders in the plant-based movement. But then when I kind of read your bio, I was like, holy cow, like you've, <laughs> you've written like a lot of and worked with people who've written a lot of really important best-selling books. And I'm, I'm, I'm just impressed. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah, I've written uh, about 40 books, although I will tell you that I'm always more impressed with the people who are doing the work more than what I do, which is help them find a public. Um, I've been very lucky to work with a lot of people I think are really making a difference in, in this world. And it's, um, you know, it's a privilege to work with people like that. They're not always easy. <laughs> Sometimes they drive me crazy. But at the end of the day, I'm really glad I had the chance yeah, so I'd love to kind of, you know, I'd like to turn this into a masterclass for myself because I feel like you have really cracked the code on on taking this material and and turning it into kind of bestseller status. Um, but also I'm just I'm just interested in like you you wrote a book all about like it was called the definitive book about watches. Well, that, that was kind of a one-off thing. Um, again, I, I, I just feel like I've had a really lucky career because I've written about 40 books. 30 of them um, were pretty much ghostwriting, co-writing, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then uh, another handful were the um, books I was able to write under my own name. And it just happens that I, I love watches. I, I just think watches are really cool. I like them. And I was lucky enough to be at a friend's memorial service which doesn't really sound like a lucky place, but I was talking to this guy who turned out to be the editor-in-chief of Abrams, which is a really terrific art publishing company. He was wearing a beautiful old Longines watch, and I commented on it, and he said that he was a big watch fan, and that I um, asked if I was too, and I explained that I, I loved them. And we both agreed that there wasn't a really good book on watches for the general public out there, so he just basically said, hey, you want to do a book? And I said, sure, let's do a book. So we did. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was how like things turn out like that. You know, you never. You, it's the thing. I got to say, living in New York has a great disadvantages, but it does have advantages sometimes. And sometimes you just can run into somebody and be at the right place at the right time. And that's happened to me a few times. And several of my books are really just because of that. Mm. Yeah, I, my my experience when I let it happen is that that can kind of come about anywhere, but New York is certainly a, uh, a crucible of like cool people to meet. There's no question it can come about anywhere. Uh, the universe is bizarre, and it isn't located in New York City, but <laughs> it is true that there's a whole bunch of editors who are just, you know, basically looking for 
projects, and if you hit one up at the right time, um, you, you can strike gold. And the Watts book was probably the best example of that. However, it's very difficult because, you know, I do like watches. A lot of the watch world, as you might imagine, is not particularly mm, health conscious. Yeah. And, and, of course, I don't want to wear a leather band because I don't believe in wearing leather. So that rules out 90% of the watches. Uh, so when I do go to these places, I, I'm always the guy with the steel band. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I was kind of, you know, I'm curious about, like... You know, the connection, like watches are, you know, they're sort of works of art. They're sort of functional. They're about, you know, engineering and and art. And I'm, I was, I'm wondering if there's something about the way, <clears throat> the way you think about those that are, that has um, echoes in the way you think about, like, you know, writing about the human body and health and, uh, hmm. and things like that. Um. That's a really interesting question, and I can't say I've ever been asked it before, and I don't think I have an answer, because in my mind, it's always, as I said, kind of a one-off thing. It's like, mm. normally I'm interested in science and health and nutrition and animals. The watch thing just seemed to come out of the blue, but maybe you're right. Maybe maybe there's some connection that I haven't thought of. <laughs> All right, well, I'll, uh, get back to us and if you think it's worthy, worthy of, of pondering. Well, I'm totally going to think about it now. <laughs> so, um, when did you become interested in health and nutrition and animal welfare and all that? Well, I've always been interested in health and nutrition and such, um, and was a vegetarian for many years, and, and, and wrote a number of really interesting books for other people. Um, you know, Andy Weil, Dr. Andrew Weil, uh -huh. he had this mentor, Robert Fulford, who was this 90-year-old osteopath in Ohio, who uh, Andy went um, all over the world looking for the world's greatest healer, the Amazon, the Himalayas, all the places you think of, and they decided the world's greatest healer was this 90-year-old uh, this osteopath in Ohio. And um, he wrote about him in Spontaneous Healing, and I was lucky enough to be picked to write Dr. Fulford's book. That was many years ago. This guy was amazing. This was a man who was coming up with all kinds of alternative health issues and, and, um, and um, ways to address problems that nobody else had really thought of before. Um, and I think that writing with him really got me going in terms of, wow, you know, you can work with these people sometimes. Dr. Fulford wasn't a great writer, but he was an extraordinary thinker. Uh -huh. And just to be able to help someone like that put their words in action and, and in a book, just, it just felt right. So I decided I, I would do more. I ended up writing uh, several books with the medical director of Canyon Ranch, um, Ultra Prevention, and um, uh, I can't even think of the other one, Ultra Metabolism? No. Oh, well, see, if you write 40 books, yeah, it's like having 40 children. You don't remember all their names. Yeah. Well, I'll, you know? uh, I'll, I'll put them in the show notes. Okay. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do the research on Amazon for you. Ultra longevity. That's the other one. Uh -huh. um, but then what happened is about 10 years ago, I got a call from my, uh, one of my agents saying that um, he had an interesting new client who was a firefighter in Texas, and, I, and he wanted to know if I wanted to meet him. And I said, um, No. <laughs> I really didn't know what I would have in common with a Texas firefighter being kind of a, you know, kind of guy that I am. So it just didn't really seem like a match. And, but uh, the agent said, no, no, I really want you to talk to him. So I did. And it turned out to be this guy, Rip, and uh, Rip Esselstyn. And um, Rip and I just bonded almost immediately, partly because we discovered within an hour that his grandfather had saved my mother's life. Huh. It was just like, whoa. But his grandfather, Barney Cryle, was called the uh, savior of the American breast because he was the first American doctor willing to do lumpectomies on women with cancer at a time when uh, male doctors just routinely mastectomized the women's breasts. Yeah. My mother had cancer. She did not want to have her breast taken off. In fact, she said she'd rather die, literally. And... Um, Barney basically uh, saved a life, and they became friends, and that was Rip's grandfather. Rip, of course, you know, was the son of Caldo Osselston and was thinking about writing a book. He had already gotten his whole firehouse in Austin to be plant-based, and so we talked about it, and we ended up uh, writing The Engine 2 Diet. 
I'm really curious about that because when I look at that book, I see, you know, sure, Rip has this incredible pedigree, you know, but like there was something so beautifully crafted about his story, his persona. It was like, you know, you look at it and you go, of course, he's going to write a best-selling book and start a movement. But like at the at the time, it probably wasn't that obvious. Like what, what were the discussions yeah. like about what elements of of his brand were going to be incorporated how? Well, again, a good question. And actually, I wasn't even the first writer on the book. The first person they brought in um, couldn't figure out how to do it, and they had to fire her. Because uh, even though, and, and, and you certainly know this, sometimes a story can seem obvious. Rips, fighter, fighter, vegan, uh, how can it miss? But you, you, you do have to figure out how, how to put all the various strands together into a coherent narrative. And with Rip, what happened was um, he had this wonderful voice. Uh, anyone who's met him can remember the energy and the enthusiasm. So my sense there was that um, obviously the story was important, but was just as important in my, as my job as a co-writer was to try to capture that voice as authentically as possible. And then if I got that voice down, if I was able to help Rip put his voice on paper, then everything would follow from that. And, and I do think that um, that kind of worked. And, and I'm not giving me a lot of credit for it. Again, Rip just has a great voice. One of the things that a ghostwriter has to do is negate their own voice and do everything they can to be as true as possible to the voice of the person they're working with. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, uh, I, I have found that to be an ego challenge. Yeah, you know, it, it's very Buddhist in a way. You know, this sense of you, when you walk into uh, a job, which I've done so many times, your job as a co-writer is to basically have no ego and to allow the other person's ego to flourish as best as it can. So you really have to work with that and figure out ways because, well, we all have egos, but people have different egos in, in different ways. And, and, and your job is to get the best out of that person, to, to make them the best person they can possibly be. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so when you were, so the, all, all of those questions and problems about branding were solved when you just did something as organic as let Rip's voice flow. It seemed to me that the right thing to do was that to let Rip be his brand, that more than what he was going to say, more than he was going to stand for, in a way, you know, it's just such a dynamic personality that he would be the brand. It, it, it would be Rip. Mm -hmm. And so um, the idea then was basically to make the book as reflective of him as possible so that he could then go out and people could, I mean, he stands for a plant-based diet. He stands for health. He stands for lots of great things, but he also stands for rip. Yeah. I, uh, and by the way, and, and, and I mean, you know him, he, uh, you mentioned his pedigree. Uh, one of the other amazing things about him is here on the one hand, he's this firefighter in Texas, um, really great guy, former uh, world-class uh, triathlete, but he has this amazing pedigree. Where his father was a great surgeon, to, is a great surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic. His grandfather was a great surgeon. His great grandfather founded the Cleveland Clinic. Um, he comes from this extraordinary uh, line of uh, medical uh, geniuses. Yeah. Yeah. So, so at that point, had you heard about, you know, Caldwell Esselstyn and, and, you know, the China study nope. and plant-based, like, so you, you were, you nope. were writing about health and wellness, but like, if you're, if you're running in like Andy Weil circles and, and Canyon Ranch, like they're not really into plant-based so nope. much. So, no, well, they were more kind of the Mediterranean diet kind of thing. They, they certainly weren't telling you, they weren't the, you know, these 
protein guys who are telling you Atkins wise to go out and eat meat as much as possible. They were advocating um, what the time seemed to be an unusually limited amount of meat in their diets. This right. was back in the in the nineties. Um, but no, they they weren't vegan, and the fact that I was basically a vegetarian at the time seemed a little odd to them. You know, they thought that's weird. Um, and, and even just ten years ago, when I started working with Rip and had not heard of his father or the China study, w- what happened is as Rip and I started talking, and, and we really got along and having a great time, I just sort of said, well, gee, if I'm going to write your book, I, I guess I have to be plant-based. I'll try it out. So I did. And by the way, it's stuck. I've never gone back, and I really enjoy it. Um, but at the time, 10 years ago, my friends all were going, wow, you must have some sort of weird eating disorder. You know, <laughs> you vegan or vegan? What, what, what are you doing? This is weird. That was just 10 years ago. There has been this extraordinary shift in the culture in this 10 years in terms of acceptance of um, being vegan or plant-based or whole food plant-based that um, I really wouldn't have uh, predicted. It's been great, and it's been terrific for me because, as you pointed out, I've been able to write a lot of books in this area, but it's not something I think I would have predicted. Mm. So what did you notice when you went plant-based? Uh, in terms of me or in yeah, terms of the world? In terms of you. <laughs> um, I, I would say that, uh, I mean, I've always been a healthy guy, and I work out, and I take care of myself, so it wasn't like I was l- looking to lose weight. Um, what kind of happened for me, at least, is that, um, and, and, and obviously everybody's different, but for me, I, um, I had not been really aware of the animal rights movement. You know, I heard of PETA and such, but Rip introduced me to Brian Wendell at Forks Over Knives, and I talked to them and ended up writing a book to coordinate with the documentary. Through that, I met Gene Bauer from Farm Sanctuary, and Gene and I became really good friends, and I ended up writing Gene's book on living the farm sanctuary life. Um, And I became much more aware, not just of the health benefits, but also the animal protection area. And that really has uh, it's been a big thing in my life. Um, I, again, I, I feel really strongly about the health area, but I feel equally strongly about the um, animal protection movement. I think animals get a really raw deal with humans these days, and I'd love to see it change. Mm. So I, I mean, do you think about that? You're, you know, again, the, the, the vegans tend to be either uh, health people or they're animal protection people or they're coming through environmental issues. Um, you, you came in through health, right? I came in through health. and uh, Are you still there? It's really interesting. Um, the, you know, par- partly I see myself as a, like a communicator and a, basically a propagandist, <laughs> right? So a lot of what I think about in my work is who is the audience and where are they and what's going to, what's going to stick, and I, and I find I have the least affinity with the animal rights people in terms of strategy. What do, what do you mean? Um, and that I just, I see that the sort of militant vegan animal rights movement very often turns people off because it's, speak, mm-hmm. it's speaking right. to people, right? So, I mean, just when you were saying, like, you became aware of animal rights once you had adopted a plant-based diet, I don't think that's an accident that, you know, when, when, we, when we start acting in harmony with philosophy, then we can start to be aware of the philosophy, mm-hmm. right? There's all, like, there's all this cognitive dissonance. I don't even want to think about animals while I'm eating burgers, <laughs> right? But once, yeah. once I'm there, once I'm doing it for, for some other reason, I've seen so many people, it's almost like the animal issue sort of bubbles up naturally. Like we're, we're basically not a bunch of assholes. We're basically a compassionate species. And, yeah. and, and that just happens. So that's, mm-hmm. that's what I mean by like, I find, I find the health people um, just e- easier to, to work with in terms of spreading their message in a way that spreads. Right. I, I understand that. And 
I think that, um, that in many ways I, I agree with you. Uh, the only thing I would say is within the animal protection area, th there is a variance of uh, intensity. Um, there are animal rights people who are pretty mellow about it. Like Gene Bauer, for instance, he's just he's a really great guy, but he's not going to hammer you over the head with it. Whereas there are certainly other people who, man, you know, they're really intense, and if you don't say the right thing. Um, I remember once giving a, a talk, and I really wasn't thinking particularly. I asked for tea, and uh, I asked if I could have some honey in it, because mm. um, at the moment I just wanted something sweet, and I was booed. <laughs> I thought, oh, dear, <laughs> I'll never do that again. <laughs> that was the last time I had honey. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I've 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 met Gene. In fact, I'm, the last time I met Gene was at a uh, a veg fest in in my state of North Carolina, and we had a you know a lovely talk. And he's he's another one of these. He reminds me a little of Rip in that he's got a a quiet, infectious nature mm -hmm. about him that just makes you want to be a better person. And <laughs> yeah. and then twenty minutes later, I was giving a talk, and I was talking about like being gradual in your transition, and I got heckled. By an animal rights activist. Yeah, yeah. That, that, look, it happens. And, and, and as you say, the health people don't have that kind of, um, I don't know what you would call it, it's more than intensity. Uh, I find that the health people are working really to try to get everyone to understand that if they adopt a plant-based whole food diet, they're more likely to enjoy better health and um, uh, live a longer life, et cetera. So it's, it's a more gentle message than somebody saying, well, if you eat a burger, you're destroying another creature's life and you should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but again, I, 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 within the animal protection movement, there, there are very, varying degrees of, uh, of that intensity. And then there are also, as I said, the third branch of um, veganism is the environmentalists who, in my mind, the ones I've met tend to be younger. Um, they tend to be really, well, I mean, there's Al Gore. Um, it's obviously one of the leaders of it, and James Cameron, who came to veganism through the environment, too. But I find that a lot of kids on college campuses are getting to being plant-based through their awareness of how much better it is for the earth mm -hmm. than eating uh, animals. Yeah. I guess for me at this point, the distinctions are like conveniences. Like I, I, I don't see them as separate, you know, especially work, working on, um, you know, the book Hole with Colin Campbell, where, you mm -hmm. know, here's a guy who's, who has been through the trenches of reductionism. And, mm -hmm. and every time he sees a fact, he's always looking for the larger hole to put it in. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, there, there, is one, there is one level of healing. And mm -hmm. it's far bigger than each of us, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's kind 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 of where I'm where I'm coming from. And have you um, been involved at all in animal rights or in the environment, or have you let your career stay mostly within the health area? Um, it's it's mostly the invitation to people is within the health and personal development area. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm personally my I'm you know, very involved in, in permaculture and regenerative farming and agriculture. And, um, I just don't know as much. So, you know, for mm -hmm. like I did an interview with, uh, with, uh, Kip Keegan, who's, you know, one of the, uh, cowspiracy guys. Mm -hmm. And, sure. um, you know, he's incredibly knowledgeable about, mm -hmm. you know, all the, you know, environmental issues and inputs and outputs and, so I, you know, I tend to sort of, you know, echo rather than be, be a leader. I'm like a follower at that part. And I'm like, you know, he's, he seems to be a smart, honest guy who's got it figured out. I'll just, I'll just let him run with that and li right. live my life accordingly. Mm -hmm. um, but have, you, um, have your books all been in the um, health area then? Um, yeah, there was two, two with uh, T. Colin Campbell and one with... Uh, Garth Davis. Uh -huh. So, oh, how, that's uh, the proteinaholic, right? Yeah, how's that doing? I think it's doing well. Um, Good. I'll, I'll uh, you know, we. 
I don't, I, I, I've only done a few books, so I don't really understand how the industry works. And like, Well, I've done many, many books, and I was a book editor. I know the industry very well, and I don't understand how it works either. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea like, uh, how, many, how many copies have been sold. I, I, get, I get the uh, you know, twice a year like, big royalty packets, and my eyes glaze over. And... Oh, nobody can figure. I mean, there are certain publishers where you get like 30 pages, and it might as well come from the Kremlin and be in Russian for all you <laughs> care. Then there are a few publishers that are a little more transparent, but, but basically, being a writer means um, you're kind of at the, uh, you're at the mercy of so many people. Yeah, people always go, "Oh, wow, you're a writer. That must be so nice." Um, but as you know, it's um, it's a very tense affair, and you're constantly dealing with so many other people. People always think, "Well, it's very solitary," and certainly the act of writing can be very solitary. But it doesn't mean that you don't have to deal with editors and agents and people who read your book and any number of other things that sometimes can be terrific experiences and sometimes can be far less than terrific. Yeah. Well, I don't think of it as solitary even when I'm writing because I have to imagine a lawyer over my shoulder who's going to sue me if I, if I, if I don't produce. <laughs> yeah. I know what you mean. Uh, on a brighter note, I often think of the person who's reading the book, but I probably should be thinking about the lawyer as well. <laughs> right. Well, on a good day, it's the person. Right. So, um, so um, I would say, go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, like you've written these, these books. I, I don't know anything about Dr. Fulford. I'm going to go look him up as soon as we get off the phone. But I know something about, you know, Canyon Ranch and Andrew Weil and like, I've since working with T. Colin Campbell and then Garth Davis, I've become like I started as sort of a hired hand, just you know, get this thing literate and out the door. But I've, I've I feel like I've been captured, <laughs> right? And I'm wondering, like, you know, could you write a book with someone who wasn't plant based at this point? But you know, just oh, that's a, you know, that's a really really great question because um, it's obviously come up several times. Um, I've been plant based now for ten years and. Um, I did do a book, uh, but it was a business book, um, with an old friend, Nolan Bushnell, who was the founder of Atari. Uh -huh. And, but you know, that was on a completely different subject and it was something I really wanted to do because he's a great guy. Um, I could certainly do a, a book with a non-vegan about a different subject, but I don't think I could do a health book that recommended a non-plant-based diet. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's 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 kind of what I was what I was asking because there's a lot of really interesting books and doctors and you know there's this whole like integrative health and functional mm -hmm. medicine and they're, they're like really cool sure. ideas. But I just I find myself like arguing with them. Well, that's just it. And as we talked about before, in terms of the ego, if you're going to bring to the table as a ghostwriter, a combative attitude toward the person that you're supposed to be writing a book for, it's probably not going to work. <laughs> the only doctors that have approached me in the last few years outside of the plant-based world were people who were, for various reasons, they were I call it plant-based friendly or plant-based curious, hmm. but they weren't people who were going to write a book that advocated a whole food plant-based diet. And I did say no, that I, I just, just felt, I said, look, you know, I wouldn't be comfortable doing this. You wouldn't be comfortable with me. If you, if, if it, one of the things you really have to do, as you know, when you're, when you're writing with someone else, is establish a really easy rapport. The, the other person has to feel completely free to talk to you and say whatever's on their mind, and you end up being something between a rabbi or a shrink or a brother or a priest or a shrink, you know, a psychiatrist. You, know, you end up being somebody they need to trust, and you have to be very confidential about it. Um, and, and part of that is there has to be some kind of um, meeting of your minds. And if you're going to end up doubting the other person or thinking, well, my ulterior motive here is to change them and turn them into a plant-based person, mm. it's not going to work. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's true. Because I, you know, I felt like in, in, with both of, of my authors that to some extent, like I, 
Oh, they, they, they were like vetting me like an au pair. Like, you're going to take care of my baby. <laughs> well, in a sense, you are. You know, we're not only going to take care of it, you're also going to help create it. You know? yeah. um, but I recently had a, 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 a quite a well-known person uh, who's written several big bestsellers uh, approach me about doing his book. And um, it wasn't a health book, but it would have it would have had a section on health i think uh-huh. um and he's not plant-based and i had to say no because as i said i just felt like it, it wouldn't be beneficial to either of us particularly him and as a professional writer if i'm not being professional and trying to do the best job and create the best product um as i said it's just not gonna work out right right it doesn't i have to say i mean it, it on the one hand it limits my ability to find projects. On the other hand, it energizes me and makes me feel really good about the ones that I do find. I did a book with um, Dr. Michael Greger, who I admire enormously, How Not to Die. And uh, that's a book I'm enormously proud of. I just think it's a great book. Michael is um, just one of the most remarkable people I ever met. Yeah, you should be. It's an amazing book. And it's, uh, you know, if, if you had asked me to predict like a, you know, sort of a business prognostication about how well a book was going to do that was sort of based on, you know, 1500 studies, <laughs> like I wouldn't have said, you know, out of the park, New York Times bestseller. That book just keeps selling and it will, you know, I think it's just basically going to sell um, for years to come. It's not going to go into paperback. Uh, there's no reason. It's it's a great hardcover book. Uh, people really like it. Uh, but you're right. It, when I first was approached on about the book, I thought, wow, I get to work with Michael Greger. This is amazing. I didn't think, oh, wow, I'm going to make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I uh, wh- whoever came up with the title. Sh- that was, um, again, that was when I was not the first writer on this one either. Um, it's funny how often I'm not the first writer. Um and it's really good when that happens. Um, the first writer, uh, when, when people start writing books, they, they often have unrealistic expectations of how the process will work, uh, how they'll work with the writer, um, how books are written. And if I'm not the first writer, the co-writer gets to go through all that with somebody else and deal with something that often doesn't go right. So by the time I come on, they're a little more open and receptive yeah. to how, how things are actually going to go. So you're, I mean, I you're, the, this, you're the rebound. I, I'm the rebound guy, <laughs> uh, and that's what I want to be. I, I did a book with um, a guy named Blake McCoskey, who is the founder of Tom's Shoes, uh-huh. which is that wonderful company that gives away a pair of shoes to a child in need for every pair of shoes they sell. And um, it was a bestseller. It was a, it was a very good book because Blake is a remarkable guy. But I was the well, he, Blake had tried two writers and himself. I, I was the fourth writer uh, on that book, <laughs> and um, that worked out really well as a result. <laughs> so, so who who was that? Your title? How not to die? No, it was the title of the guy who came before me. Okay. Um, because you know when I when I think about. Like you know, Hole, uh, which I think is a wonderful book, and I, and I want lots of people to read it. I think mm-hmm. the subtitle, you know, "Rethinking of the Science of Nutrition," is mm-hmm. probably not as universally appealing as "How Not to Die." Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I would go along with that. Um, it's um, you know, it's I, I will tell you, it's um, I read the book I have in front of me right now. It's a really terrific book and it's an important book and I've bought 10 copies and given them out. Whole Rethinking the Science of Nutrition looks terrific on the title, on the cover. It doesn't sound as good when I say it to people. Mm. You know? Yeah, that's, a, that's, uh, that's, that's good advice. I'm going to think about it. I haven't really, I never thought about that. Like uh, the, the auditory <laughs> qualities of a title. Yeah, but it is a great book. You did a terrific job, both of you. Well, thanks. So what what was what was it like to to work on how not to die because there's you know Michael Greger has a has a voice mm-hmm. he has a style um you know I don't know how many videos he had 
had in the can by the time you started working, probably, you know, several. It seemed like about five million or so. Yeah, several, several thousand, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Like, how did you not just turn this into a best of, you know, top 10, li- you know, how, how did you formulate the narrative that goes into, first of all, the whole book and then each chapter? Well, you know, again, it's one of these things where what you try to do um, as a writer when you're working with someone like Michael, who has such an enormous body of work, is you really have to spend a lot of time before you even start trying to figure out what the book is first. And in a case like that, um, you just really have to um, decide there's so much material, there's so much information, there's so many studies. What goes in the book? What belongs in the book? and a lot of uh, a lot of Michael's best stuff didn't go in the book because there just wasn't room for it. Um, and then there was that decision to make the second half of the book a much more practical uh, uh, section, so that people could actually see what it is that Michael likes to eat and use those recommendations to change their own diet. Um, and then the other part of it was, as you said, Michael's voice. And, and that's, as, as you know from having done this, that's just really a matter of you know, again, you just you try to be the best mimic you can. Um, I, I've been approached by people who say they want me to write their book and we can do it by phone. And I'm going, no, I really I need to spend time with you. I need to know you. I need to hear you talk. In Michael's case, it was easier because with all those videos, it was, you know, it was very easy to get his voice, which, as you said, is very distinctive because he had his voice on video all over the web. Right. And I think it would have been a huge disappointment for people because I don't know how many books he sold just based on, you know, his, his subscribers, his fan base. But, you know, I, when I started reading, especially, you know, the, the call out sections, like I remember entire sentences or phrases in the book that I remembered from videos. I'm like, yeah, ah, this is, (laughs) this is great. I just, no, you're, 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 you're quite right. We, we, we worked very hard to, um, we, we didn't want to just repeat the transcripts, obviously, but we also wanted to create a book that would have something akin to the best of Michael so that people who do know the video as well would recall and, 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 and as you did, go, oh, wow, I remember that, or, oh, I, you know, that, that's really cool. He said that in such and such a place because, yeah, a lot of the people, particularly the ones who bought the book when it first came out, were um, his great fans. And so I think they would have been very disappointed if the book hadn't done exactly what you're saying right now, reminded them of what they liked so much about him. Mm-hmm. Right. But it was really fun to work with. And as I said, Michael, he's such an extraordinary fellow. I really don't know anyone like him. (laughs) He seems to like he works hard. Michael is probably one of the hardest working people I've ever met in my life. He's one of those people who basically wakes up every day and figures out how to maximize each hour so that he is as productive as possible in every way possible. Mm. It's really unusual. (laughs) I wonder, you know, most of us, like, we get up and, like, you know, maybe if I have a cup of coffee, I'll figure out what I'm going to do or whatever. You know, Michael's up three hours earlier having done more work than most people do in a day. Right. I wonder if he considers it work. Well, that's actually interesting, and I don't think he does because he loves it so much. It's his passion. So, you know, work has a pejorative element to it, and I don't think there's anything pejorative about how Michael approaches all of this. He loves it. Mm. I mean, and I have to say, uh, Rip, he loves it. You know, one of the great things about working with Rip or Gene or um, I'm working with Nathan Runkle now, uh, Mercy for Animals. Uh-huh. Um, these are all people for whom um, their mission is their passion, is their work, and is their sustenance. And very few people in this world get to have that. And I think they all know it and they're grateful. And it helps make them thrive. Yeah. That's something I wonder about a lot, whether it's true that only a few people get to do that or like what this world would be like if, 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 if everybody could, you know, believed yeah. they could, that, that, that equation could work for them. Well, you know, I don't think most people actually, and I hope this doesn't sound wrong, but I don't think most people actually know what their passion is or know 
what what it would be that would make them feel that fulfilled. It, it, it's a lucky group of people who are that connected. Mm. Um, I, I don't think in our culture we really work on that. Most of us just, you know, go to school, you know, we watch TV, <laughs> things happen, all of a sudden we have a job, and then we have a wife and a mortgage and kids and a car, and, you know, life just kind of happens to us. So if you're one of these people who grows up, like, well, going back to Jean again, who basically became a vegan in 1985. Uh, you know about through Gene Bauer. Own, yeah, Gene Bauer, through his reading and his work. Um, you know, this is a guy who's basically almost his entire adult life has been uh, about promoting something that he feels so incredibly strongly about. Um, I don't know many people like that. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I really feel lucky to meet these people because I'm not that way. I, I'm the guy who's like still kind of, you know, well, I don't know. What am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very proud of um, being able to create these books with these other people. But yeah, I'm not one of those people. And I'm just grateful that those people need people like you and me. Yeah. Yeah. Although you did write a book on watches. I wrote a book on watches. Like, uh, like, I wrote a book called Secrets of People Who Never Get Sick, which I'm very proud of. I wrote that. That was a book I did on my own that was a bestseller, sold to 32 countries and continues to sell. And that was a book based on all the medical writing I'd done. I figured, well, maybe I should put it together myself as a journalist and write about the 25 secrets to not getting sick that I've run into. And that was actually a lot of fun because then I got to be the guy who went on all the TV shows and I got to be the one who was the front man and see what that was like. Oh, dude, you had to coach me on that. <laughs> well, it's not as easy as I thought, you know. <laughs> you really have to work at it. Um, at one point, my publisher actually sent me on a 21-city tour. Man, for particularly since I don't really like to travel that much, mm. that was one of those months where I don't even remember, was it a month or a month and a half? I was in 21 cities on what must have been 40 or 50 TV or radio shows talking about the same thing over and over again. You really have to still yourself because it is not easy. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that, that is a month that I would love to complain about later. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it's funny because a lot of what got me through it was thinking, I will be very glad I did this when it's over. Right. Right. And, and again, that's a great title. Like that's, a, that's, you know, it's got the word secrets in it. It's got mm -hmm. this benefit, never get sick. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was that your yeah, title? Well, titles can be, uh, titles. Yeah. Titles can, can really, they can sell a book. Most, most books don't have those kinds of titles, but if, if you're lucky enough to come up with that title, I remember when I was an editor, the first bestseller I ever edited, it was a huge bestseller. It was, I ran into a woman who was taking a course at NYU or the new school and, um, she was teaching a course called Why Do I Think I'm Nothing Without a Man? Hmm. And I thought, oh, well, there's a bestseller right there. She doesn't even have to put anything in it. Yeah. You know, all she has to do is put that on the title page. And, it, yeah, it turned out to be a huge bestseller just because of the title. It doesn't happen too often, but everyone – or, like, the great example of that, of course, was the um, – uh, was it everything you ever want to know about sex but were afraid to ask? Yeah. Ah, oh, Jesus. You know, didn't have to have anything. That title was amazing. Um, and so, yeah, every once in a while, if you can come up with the right title, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a great book to go with it, but a great title goes a long way. Yeah. I have to say, when I was like 12 years old, I discovered this spoof book in my house called Everything You Never Wanted to Know About Sex, But I'll Tell You Anyway. <laughs> I don't know that one. That, that, was, uh, that was much more entertaining than the real one <laughs> to a 13-year-old. I'm sure it was. <laughs> So, but one of, one of the things, like when we're talking about titles, like you, uh, how would you write a title like that about the environmental movement or about animal rights? Like, like there's something, I don't want to say the word selfish, but there's something very self-interested about how not to die or how not to get uh -huh. sick. Like, do you think it can be done to? Well, that's a great question. And it's actually one I am working on this very minute as a proposal I'm working on with the a uh, fellow who runs One Green Planet. Do you know that website? I do. Yeah, it's a terrific website, and, and Neil Zacharias runs it. And he and I are putting together a proposal for a book we both want to write on the relationship of a plant-based diet to the environment. And we're working on a title right now, which I think is a great title, but I can't tell you because 
I have to wait and see what happens tomorrow when the publisher decides if they want it or not. Oh, okay. Well, I will let you know. <laughs> but I, I love the fact that you're thinking of it because we, uh, the the title was was kind of out of our hands, as the, you know the, the the process of coming up with it. It was it was it was not organic to the books that I've written. Oh yeah. What do you, what do you mean? Um, well, it was like we were working on the book and we didn't even have a working title for a lot of it. And then it was like, well, here's a list of seven. Let's everyone, everyone put in our ideas. Right. Um, like, you know, Proteinaholic was pretty much from the beginning. And mm-hmm. I didn't like it particularly. And, and I came up with several titles that, as I look back, were much worse. <laughs> but then I will, I will admit that I had a conversation with uh, T. Colin Campbell while we were working on Whole, or before we started working on Whole, where he was wanted to know if I wanted to help with marketing this movie that, that people were making about him. And when mm-hmm. he told me the title, I told him, these people are complete amateurs, walk away. And of course, the movie was Forks Over Knives. Oh. <laughs> so, so I feel that disqualifies me from, from any conversation about titles. Well, I will tell you in all honesty, when I first heard Forks Over Knives, I didn't have your reaction, but I certainly didn't think, oh, that's a winning title. Um, It took me a little while to get into it. Um, I did, obviously, because I wrote the book, but it was not a title that I immediately thought was a winning title. But what often happens with books is that, yeah, sometimes you have a title that makes the book, but other times you have a book that makes the title. Mm. If a book can stake out a territory, so powerfully the way Forks Over Knives did, it's almost like it, I'm not going to say it didn't matter, but it, it almost doesn't matter. The title then becomes just emblematic about what the book is about. Yeah. But and it's I think also, that's what really also... happened. If you ask people what Forks Over Knives means, most people will say, oh, I guess it means you should use a fork instead of cutting meat with a knife. Yeah, really. Whereas you know it really means you choose what you eat as opposed to the surgeon's knife, which is what will happen if you don't choose wisely. Yeah, but what, I guess what's good about it, when you, you know, talked earlier about like it being a good auditory title, like it's forks over knives, like when you say it, you, you visualize things. So I think exactly. it's easy to remember. Mm-hmm. It is a wonderful auditory title because even if people don't know what it means, they hear it and they can repeat it and they like it. And you're right. And it's just you, you forks and knives. They're symbols that are easy to grasp. You see them in your head. So um, I do think in the long run it was a very good title. But like you, I didn't quite see that the moment it was presented to me. <laughs> So when you were working on Forks Over Knives, like, so, you know, so Brian has, is a genius at creating. Oh, Brian, Brian's a marketing whiz. He's, uh, he, he's created a entire industry by himself. He, he, well, he's had obviously a great staff around him, but he, he, he's remarkable. Yeah. So, you know, talk about like, you know, he, he just wanted to make this movie, right? He was like in commercial real mm-hmm. estate. He didn't know anything about anything. He didn't know anything about, yeah. about science or health or, or video. And yeah. he says, well, I just want to do this. And then you know, he, he was able to, to see the potential to turn it into its own industry, to, in its own brand. So when he was, ta- mm-hmm. when he, what did he want to do? Like the book was kind of like the, the first brand extension after the website, right? Yeah, basically, um, I knew that the uh, movie was being made. And so I was talking to him, you should have a book come out. Um, but it was very hard to get his attention because the poor guy was just deluged with so many things because you know, now we look back and they oh yeah, Forks Over Knives, big success. But obviously, before it came out, um, nobody knew it was going to be the success it was. He had so much to do. So, you know, it, it's very hard to get him to focus. Um, but he eventually did and realized that what we needed to do was have a book that would come out exactly when the, the movie came out so that it was uh, a brand extension that took place the moment the brand appeared. Uh huh. So, so you were sort of laying the tracks while you were driving the train. Mm-hmm. You didn't. Yeah. You didn't have the movie. <laughs> right. And I mean, the whole it was weird because I, when he came to me finally and said, uh, "Yeah, let's totally go ahead with this," and I was very excited. Um, I was just happy to have lunch with uh, uh, a guy that Rip knew, who, and this guy named Matthew, who was the uh, running a very small press called the Experiment. And I just said, hey, I just got this phone call. Um, do you want to do a book? And 
it's got to come out quickly. And uh, what do you think? And Matthew goes, um, okay, we'll do it. <laughs> and again, it's that weird New York City thing. And um, this was the first big book that publishing company did, and it really was um, enormously beneficial for everybody, but particularly for them. Mm. So when you when you were conceptualizing the, the Forks Over Knives book, what did you think it needed to do? I thought that mostly it needed to um, uh, fill out who the people were who, who were being interviewed in the movie and, and give them more of an opportunity to speak. You know, the, the movie's terrific, and, and you get to see the people and watch them, but I wanted to give them more space to talk. Uh-huh. And... Um, we also decided it would be a paperback, so and it wasn't going to be very big, so there wasn't that much space. So in, in, in essence, it was not just a brand extension; it was a kind of a documentary extension. Uh huh. So, so sort of like the you know the extended version, but in, yeah. a, in a form that right. somebody could have on their table and open any any time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, are you working on any new uh, plan-based projects? I am. Um, I I decided I wanted to get into podcasting in a really big way after listening to Serial podcast. Okay. Um, <laughs> so so I went on Amazon and I bought all these books on how to do great radio, uh-huh. and and I'm work so I'm working on a a project um, with Josh Lajani. I don't know if you know. He was he no. was at he was at Plantstock. He's the guy from Louisiana who was over 400 pounds and is now a competitive ultra yeah. runner. Oh wow! Uh, he was on Rich Roll's podcast a couple of times, so okay. so we're 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 working on kind of his his biography slash um, you know inspirational book, and mm-hmm. also you know he came up here and we spent a, a dozen hours um, talking into a tape recorder. Um, mm-hmm. So you know i i would I would love to create uh, a podcast where every Every season is one person's transformation story. Hmm. Okay. Um, cause, I like know, that. Because as you know, as, as as I've, I'm I'm just so awestruck at people who've overcome so much, <laughs> and and you know that one and one of the tools that that all these people are using is this plant based diet. Hmm. Well, what about you? Have you overcome? Has uh, the plant based diet done something similar for you? Yeah. My my. I mean. You know, moderately. It's like I don't. Yeah. I I couldn't write my book, and you like were never five hundred and fifty pounds. No, I was like, you know, I have a, have this picture of me at one hundred and ninety three pounds with a you know pizza cheese dripping from. A, it's not exactly the before picture that people are going to go. Yeah. Oh my god! Right, right. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, again, it goes back to what we were saying in the beginning, which is that for 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 both you and me, a lot of what we do is help these other people with these great stories. Uh, find a way to present them to the public. You know, again, I don't have a before picture. I look pretty much the same. I pretty much weigh what I weighed when I graduated from college. You know, I'm a lot uh-huh. older and I've lost my hair, but other than that, you know, there's not a great transformation. <laughs> right. Although, you know, I mean, one of the things that's, that I've really appreciated is that, you know, that there's other transformations that I can make. Like, like for many years, I was sort of, I was sort of thinking, like, yeah, I'm just like a midwife for these amazing people, and that 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 felt very true when I was working with Colin, with Garth, with with scientists. Like, there, I was not going to become a scientist to that extent. Mm-hmm. But when yeah. I'm working with like ordinary people, like Josh Lajani has like two jobs, <laughs> you know, and he has to get up at three mm-hmm. thirty in the morning to run. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, if he's being extraordinary, then why the hell can't I? <laughs> Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Uh, do you know Big Bald Mike? Yeah, I, I interviewed yeah. him. Yeah, Big Bald Mike is a friend of mine. Um, he's another one of these guys. I think he may have been at 600 pounds, who is in the process of going from a incredibly uh, crazed, redneck kind of meat-eating guy to uh, this gentle giant of a uh, plant-based magician. Um, and another one, and, and I would love to uh, work with him on a book because uh, I think he is somebody whose story really would resonate, not with the 
normal person you think is a you know you think of vegans and unfortunately in our culture you sometimes think of people who are maybe a little privileged or a little more educated um what i love about mike is his background is as duck dynasty redneck as you can be and i and i would love to have his story out there so people can see that being plant-based isn't about a it's not a cultural thing and it's not a class thing it's a commitment to something very different and that anybody in our culture can go there yeah. And yeah, I think that's, that's, I think the more, the more unlikely the person, you know, the, the better movie it makes. Absolutely. Yeah. Have you, have you done any, uh, cinema, any, any screenplays or thought about that? Well, yeah, sure. As a writer, when I was uh, younger, <laughs> I moved to LA and I spent about five years as a screenwriter with my screenwriting partner. And we actually did quite well. I think everything got sold and nothing got made and it got very frustrating. And I didn't like Hollywood. Not that many people do. Um, but we were again, lucky enough to advance very quickly, have terrific meetings, uh, meet all kinds of people that we wanted to meet. And it still just didn't feel good. It just never felt right. And I um, thought, you know, I, I'm, I'd been a book editor before that, and I thought I really would prefer the book business. So mm. I left L.A., and I haven't done anything since. Um, I w still would like to do something if it came up, but now it would only work if it were, again, part of what I now consider to be this passion I have about uh, being plant-based. As yeah. opposed to just well, maybe, you anything know, at all. Maybe Jim Cameron can put in a good word. Cause, cause like, <laughs> so, so like 10 years ago, like being vegan or being plant-based was like weird eating disorder. And now it's getting close to acceptable, if not mainstream. But in movies, like if someone is a vegan or a vegetarian, it's, it's, they're almost always a foil. Yep. And they're going to, you know, at some point their, their transformation is they're going to learn how to embrace life and free themselves from, from shackles of restriction. Yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, you are quite right. In the general culture, vegan still has something of a pejorative sense to it. Um, and, in fact, uh, some of the people I work with don't even want to use the word vegan. They feel that it is not going to be helpful. Um, they want to stick with whole food, plant-based. Other people are okay with vegan. But, um, yeah, my hope is, uh, I don't know, did you see that uh, Joko, the great tennis player, is opening up a vegan restaurant in Europe? Oh, yeah? Jo yeah. No Novak Djokovic? Yeah. Um, and somebody else, and I'm blanking, uh, uh, another big celebrity who you would have expected has suddenly come out as vegan. Oh. Um, as this continues, as people begin to see those they respect, uh, like Cory Booker, for instance, somebody who's an outstanding politician, an amazing guy, and also happens to be vegan, as, as that continues to grow, I would like to see the act of being plant-based normalized as, as opposed to like as I felt 10 years ago when everybody just said, oh, dear, you, 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 you have some sort of like bulimia, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's why I think like, you know, I think like Rip's story mm -hmm. could, be, uh, could be fictionalized or, or you know, dramatized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, um, James Cameron and Joseph Pace and James Wilkes are working on this documentary, Game Changers, yeah. which is going to be about the um, extraordinary number of world-class athletes who are plant-based. And I'm really hoping that when that comes out, and it's being directed by Luis Osses, who is, you know, an Oscar-winning genius. And so it's got such an extraordinary group of people behind it that I'm hoping when it comes out next year, it will really have the same kind of effect that I think that Forks Over Knives had a step later. Forks Over Knives was so instrumental in helping people understand why there are plant-based people from a health point of view. I think that Game Changers um, is going to help people understand that this is not just something for people who have heart problems or are weird, but this is something that these amazing athletes are doing because they really like it and it's helping their athletic performance. People don't still don't think people think of vegans as being skinny little weirdos and, and not like the, the guy who was the, um, the weightlifter, the only American weightlifter at the Olympics was vegan. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that, uh, that movie, but I, I yeah. I, st I still think more people are going to watch Avatar and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think so too, but, you know, you do your best. <laughs> Terminator. <laughs> yeah, right. 
Now, somebody told me that Schwarzenegger is edging towards being plant-based. Yeah, yeah. Now he's, now he's going to hit like a vegetarian. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what, vegetator. <laughs> so um, you've got this project that you're working on that you can't share the title. Uh, uh, not yet. With, with Nathan Runkel? Uh, no, Nathan Runkel's book he, is called Mercy for Animals. Oh, okay. And that's going to come out. Uh, oh, it's Neil Zacharias's book is the. Yeah, that, the um, One Green Planet guy. That's the one we're still working on the title, so I don't feel comfortable okay. sharing it yet because we haven't really figured it out. Gotcha. But I think we may have a good title. Gotcha. Um, and then um, there's another project that I probably, well, let me just, I, I'm continuing to work in this area. All right. So, um, so we'll, we'll keep an eye out. So if, if folks, do you have like your own like website, blog, mm -hmm. social media yeah. presence? I'm not much of a blogger. You know, I, I try to blog. I, <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way. I don't have much to say. Yeah. I'm like, don't ask me to tweet or post. Yeah. Like I'll write a book every two years, but leave yeah, me alone exactly. between. Yeah. So, um, but I do have genestone.com and that has all the information about me that anybody could possibly ever want. Okay. And of course, I'm very Facebook friendly. If somebody wants to Facebook friend me, I always go sure. <laughs> Excellent. So, and that's uh, for those who are, who are listening, who are not in front of a computer, that's G-E-N-E -E stone. Exactly. Com. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll post links to, uh, to this and to as many of your, of your books as, uh, as I can fit. <laughs> okay. Um, That'd be terrific. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm really, I'm looking forward to finding out your, your title and I will, I will keep you posted. And I'm really, you know, I'm really appreciative because I feel like you more than anyone have raised the art of writing about plant-based issues to, to a, to a level of, of, of attraction and engagement that, that, uh, that brings other people in. So, I you know, I, I, thanks for saying that, but it actually brings up a point I would like to make, um, I'm not ever going to be Gene Bauer or Michael Greger or Rip. Um, I'm not somebody who wants to go around the country every day promoting these ideas because it's just really not who I am. But I was able to nonetheless use whatever skills I have as a writer to still do, I think, some good. What I would love for other people out there to think about is, you know, if you are plant-based, what are some of the skills you have that maybe you can use to help other people in the area? Um, for instance, I, uh, there's a publicist I know, Ann Sullivan. Uh, she's terrific. Um, and uh, when she became plant-based, she pretty much moved herself over to just doing plant-based books. And, you know, you don't think necessarily of a publicist is somebody who cares about the world, but she really does. She's been able to use her skills as a publicist to make a living and also to help promote so many of these great books. So if, if you're out there and you're plant-based and you want to do more, just think about the things you can do, whether it's, I don't know, cooking or knocking on doors or talking to people, but it, almost everybody has something they can do that can help other people. Mm. And so it'd be really nice if people listening to this think about it a little bit and, and lend a hand. I'm so glad you said that because there's, it's so easy to to get caught in this binary of like, you know, you're a professional or a famous person or like there's something that separates you from me or you from everybody else. And so therefore I'm off the hook. I get to listen to this. I get to I get to be a consumer, but I don't have to be a, a change agent. Mm -hmm. And I love yeah. I love that, that the invitation that you just put out there. I think everybody is a potential change agent and everybody if, if, if they would act on it, might be surprised to find out how much they actually were a change agent. Yeah. You know, and as we were talking before about, you know, finding your passion, like, <clears throat> I think the idea that you have to know what it is before you take a step is <laughs> mm -hmm. like, you know, well, don't go to kindergarten until you know what graduate course you're going to take. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, in my case, I took the step and then found my passion. <laughs> I was very lucky, but that's the way it works sometimes. So again, you know, somebody's out there listening. They think they have something they can offer. They're not sure about it. Try it. See how it goes. Right on.
Right on. Well, Gene, th- I mean, I feel like a lot of this has been sort of writers inside baseball, which is just sort of me selfishly wanting to hear your experiences and pick your brain. But I, I think also there's there's like there's so much instructive here about that, that's applicable to all of us, not just about, you know, writing and finding projects, but about finding finding your voice, whether it's a written yeah. voice or, you know, how you how you express in the world is all any of us have. So I'm, I'm really appreciative of of your of your guidance and your example and, and of the work you've done and, and continue to do. No, oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time. Okay. Talk soon. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes with links to all of Gene's books at plantyourself.com slash 177. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 176 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but you're not on my email newsletter list, why don't you get over to plantyourself.com and sign up? You can do so top right. You can do so from within any of the podcasts. Thank you to Plant Yourself Podcast patrons, Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Merrill, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kanofsky, David Vizek, Michelle X, The Mysterious, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Holt-Zosina, and Julianne Roland. I think it's the first time I ever did that. Probably Julianne. But uh, when you're out of breath, take what you can get for your generous support of the podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can share this on other episodes on social media and via email. You can write a review on iTunes and you can become a patron by pledging a one-time amount or an ongoing gift to the podcast over at plantyourself.com. You may have noticed if you're a regular that I've doubled the um, output. I'm now doing two a week largely because I was tired of telling people who had given their time that I wasn't going to publish for like two or three months. But also, I kind of like doing it. So let me know if you enjoy having two a week, if that's cool or if that's too much. I'd love your feedback because, you know, the truth is I'm doing this for me, but uh, I'm doing it for you, too. So I'd love to hear what you think. So um, in other news, I ran my 50K on Saturday. So if I sound a little bit loopy today, I'm still I'm still recovering. Um, if you go to plantyourself.com slash 177, I have a, a link to uh, my TV show, Triangle Be Well, Tribe Well, where I actually spend an hour talking about lessons learned from training for the race and from running the race. And uh, to, to put you out of your suspense, if you were in any suspense, uh, I did great. I finished. I, uh, I am walking. I am, I am recovering. And I came in the 50K at five hours, eight minutes and 40 seconds, which puts me 20th out of the 68 runners. So I was pleased as punch with myself. I managed to do it in just under a 10 minute mile pace for 31 miles. So thank you very, very much. So in garden news, um, well, we're, we're at that awkward time where we're trying to figure out whether to buy kale or just get it from the garden it's starting to come up. So that's that's kind of cool. Uh, we're still fighting our battles with squirrels, groundhogs, birds, deer. Um, so we're we're feeling very much part of the uh, the great circle of nature, although not not always a very cheerful part. And we're starting to figure out how to batten down a little bit for Hurricane Matthew, which may or may not pay us a visit uh, this coming weekend. That's all from this week. And as always, be well, my friends. <laughs>